You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, you're human. And you're funny. Thank you. And you're brave. All right, well, at least now they know I'm not full of crap. Have you always wanted to be a comedian? Yeah. It was the result of a severe blow to the head. <laughs> I was traveling all over the country. I was a headliner. Living the dream. But something was gnawing at me. I thought maybe I was gay. I reached this point where I couldn't avoid my truth anymore. So in case you didn't know it, I should tell you that I'm transgender. That's not normal. Then the other side of me is going, that's normal for you. I married really, really young. It was doomed from the start. I was the dad, and I wanted to be the mom. To me, it was an awful betrayal. Her kids immediately wanted no part of her. I was devastated. I made the decision to prioritize fitting in over my family. I still feel like a lot of guilt around the whole thing, so... You know, I tell people my dad's coming and then an old woman walks into the room and I'm like, hello, father. And it's very confusing. You know, dear, I've had a good life. You take my seat on the life pole. Obviously, sweetie, it's a yes. The fact that you were here to see this amplified it like a thousand percent. Always this like sad sack and I hate life. Now I think you're so much more fulfilled and so much more joyful. I really gotta go. <laughs> you gotta be happy. It's about quality of life. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with director Susan Sandler about her new film, Julia Scotti, Funny That Way. It is a look at a trans comedian, Julia Scotti. Very funny lady, very compelling story, and a great documentary. It's available across all kinds of platforms. Definitely check it out. Hope you enjoy the interview. I am very curious how you got into... Well, writing films and writing plays. I began writing very early in, in my young life as a, a storyteller, just, you know, beginning to tell stories through short stories and poetry. I, I won a poetry prize from the wonderful Archibald McLeish. And the poem that I, I won for was called Ode to the Pickle Lady. And it was the kernel of the idea that became Crossing Delancey. When a writer begins and where stories come from and how ideas are formed over the years and what we carry with us and how those stories and images grow, that's kind of a, a real key to that. I mean, that was an image that came to me because I visited my 
my bubby, my grandmother on the Lower East Side. Pickle stands were very much a part of the world there. And there was a pickle lady who lived on her floor in, in her building. And I wrote a poem called Ode to the Pickle Lady that was inspired by her. And then many, many years later, I moved to New York as a, uh, a young artist and a lonely young woman. And my bubby, who very much wanted me to be happy and loved and, and in a good marriage, had pointed out a matchmaker who was working the benches in her housing project. And that, you know, the, together with the poem that I had written many years before this lived experience became the stuff Crossing Delancey, which I wrote first as a play, five-character play that had wonderful people in it, including Melanie Mayron, Shirley Stoller from Seven Beauties, and The Honeymoon Killers, which I'm sure you know. So the wonderful Shirley Stoller was in the play off-Broadway, and that play became, I wrote it then uh, as a screenplay, Crossing Delancey. When I wrote the screenplay Crossing Delancey, I brought a lot of my life into it. A lot of the film was shot in my very own apartment building. I had done a play with with someone who was dating one of the roaches. And so I got to know the roaches and I I brought Joan Silver to to hear them perform because I was writing the screenplay to one of those one of their albums. So it was my soundtrack as I was writing it and I wrote the soundtrack into the script. So the script is full very personal details, everything from, if you know the movie, there's a scene where there's a performance artist who happened to be a friend of mine, you know, wrote her into it. We shot in my apartment building and there was a, a baby, a neighbor's baby who became, even though this was Emily, Emily became the baby used for the, the circumcision scene, even though she lacked <laughs> the necessary part, you know. You know, the film is just full and I'm in a scene that I had written initially for Isaac Singer as the writer. It was a sort of a, a literary salon. And he wasn't available, and I wrote to him. You know, I was asked to write to him to see if I could coax him to, to be in the scene, and he wasn't available. So I wrote to many, many other people. And finally, I just popped my own poetry into the scene, and it became well, the wonderful Rosemary Harris played that the writer in that scene. So it's, you know, it's a script when you start digging in, into the screenplay, the details that are highly autobiographical just are flooded through the film. That's a very important pointer in my career. It led to a lot of other wonderful opportunities. I wrote a screenplay that starred Kathleen Turner called Friends at Last that had a kind of interesting journalistic source. I've just kept writing both for theater and, and film ever since. That's kind of been my path. And the project that we're going to talk about today is my first documentary. And I've directed for the theater, but this is my first role as a director in film. So what inspired you to make a documentary and to say, like, I'm going to be the person that tells this story? I met Julia Scotti through performance. I, I got to see her perform all that a friend of mine produced, Jane Condon, a wonderful comedian. And I'd worked with Jane on her one-woman show. I'd helped her put it together dramaturgically. I'd interviewed her and worked with her kind of as a playwright, helping her figure out the pieces. And then I had brought her to a director friend of mine who is a wonderful theater director. And I gave her the space to work at a theater company where I'm a member, Ensemble Studio Theater. So I'd, I'd done that for Jane and it was a great experience. And when I met, when I saw Julia Scotti perform on this bill that Jane had produced, I just fell in love. I loved what I saw. I loved her storytelling. I loved 
everything about her. And then I got to hang out with her afterwards because I always do that with uh, the wonderful people that Jane introduces me to on stage. And she gave me something to read that she was working on, uh, a pilot. We began working on a one-woman show. I suggested I would be happy to help her with that. And the minute I started to hear the stuff of her story, that her children had just come back into her life after this 15-year estrangement, that you know everything about the then and now of her story that she had performed as Rick Scotty 20 years earlier and had this really great career, you know, touring with Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock and, you know, my namesake, Adam Sandler, people from that period, and and now had returned to comedy in a different gender. Everything about that just said to me, this wants to be a documentary. I mean, there was the archival material, the idea that, you know, all of that existed because even though it wasn't beautifully shot, you know, it's just what comedians do. They look at their work. They shoot and shoot and shoot and have, you know, sometimes it's just a camera shot in the back of a set up in the back of a club, very badly uh, lit. But all that are, you know, those are the jewels of the then and now of the story. So I initially thought, you know, I would try to find, I would, you know, maybe find a producer or find, you know, a team to do it. And the more I started thinking about handing it off to somebody, the more I realized, no, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. It's, you know, it's a process. It's storytelling. It's what I knew how to do. And I had spoken early on to a wonderful documentary figure, Elise Perlstein, who had been a participant for a long time, and now she's in another company. And she was interested in the project, and I told her that this is my first time out. And, you know, and she said, you know, so what? You're, you're a storyteller. You know how to do that thing. And that's what it's about. It's about understanding where the story lives and then working to build that emotional connection to your central character. And that's what I know how to do. So everything else in this process, which has been now a total of six years with a distribution piece, I have learned so much. I've had such a, a glorious time. And I've been supported by so many wonderful people along the way. I, I teach at a great film school at NYU Tisch. And there are great talents all around me and a lot of them in the documentary. You know, I would turn to a lot of people for that advice. I, I shared an office with, and this is going to make me choke up now, with the brilliant Louis Erskine, the brilliant, brilliant Louis Erskine, who just died last night. He, his last project, he worked on my film as a consulting editor. He edited the wonderful Miles Davis doc that came out this year. And I mean, you know, just incredible body of work and a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful human being. And he was a great source of advice to me along the way. We shared an office, so, you know, right there every day talking about the project. You know, there was a lot to learn, but at the heart of every, every film story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, there is a character with an interesting problem who we want to care about. And that's, you know, what I found in Julia. So the, this has been a you know a really great ride with someone who I first admired on stage, then got to know personally, and she gave me the gift of trust and letting me tell her story, and that's what we've been up to. Tell me a little bit more about your team and some of the people that you worked with directly. My team includes great Sam Roth, who did our animation, who's also out of Tish. My dear colleague, Marsha Moore McKeever, who I worked with in the edit suite. We sat together every day. I poured over the footage and would bring ideas of what I wanted to work on that day. And it was, you know, highly collaborative because it's writing. I mean, editing is writing. And so I was, you know, very hands-on 
every day. This was not something I let go. I was, you know, I poured through the archival material and found the pieces that I wanted and poured through all of our footage and did a kind of a paper edit of what we were going to work on that day. So that was that part of the process. I began early on working with a great composer named Matt Hutchinson, who was scoring early on, not even when we were in Rough Cut. He was starting to score just, you know, pieces of the film as it was beginning, just in the assembly, you know, he was giving us that. So that was one incredible source of just a really important piece of the puzzle to have the sense of the rhythm of the storytelling and have them, you know, the, the composer right there. So never once did I have to think about temp music. You know, in terms of the shooting, I called on a lot of lovely people who came through the program at Tisch and Stephen Roll was, you know, one of the primary people who shot. Seth Goldblum, there were just, you know, I think five different people who shot through this five years of, of the shoot. And, you know, it's it's the nature of indie doc. You put together the crew that you have and, and figure out the what next. It's one thing for Julia to trust you. I'm curious about her children and what that was like to get them to trust you as well. It was interesting. You know, they had just started to communicate just as we began the project. And it was delicate. You know, it was very delicate. I think Dan, because his roots are in comedy, and even in this absence of all this time, he had found his way uh, almost, you know, genetically into the comedy realm, was writing sketch comedy. And so he and Julia found a real place to land, I think. I think it was more difficult for Emma. She saw Julia perform for the first time on our shoot. That was the very, so that was a pretty amazing day. I think, you know, she, she has been very careful about what the parameters are. You know, I didn't think she wanted to get too invested in what we were up to, but Dan really did and was, you know, really generous with his time. It was lovely to watch him reuniting with Julia. That was, you know, a lot of the stuff of the, the heart of the film. The scene of them kind of building bits was such a wonderful moment. Just to see the back and forth between those two was just very heartwarming. It's the best kind of verite because it's it's landing emotionally for the people that we're getting to observe. You know, something is really happening. It's very central to their personal growth. And we felt you know, really privileged to be there. The other really striking moment for me, which I can't even imagine what it was like for you seeing the footage and then being like, okay, this has got to be in here is when she is reacting to herself, telling jokes about trans people. And that to me was just like the moment where I just completely fell apart. I poured through the archival materials. I went, you know, Julia very generously gave me everything. She gave me every VHS tape and it was not beautifully stored stuff. So there was a lot of restoration, journals, letters, poetry, short stories, everything. She just was so open and wonderful in, in that way. And I spent, as you can imagine, hours and hours and hours and hours pouring through the, that footage. And some of it was gorgeous and interesting, and some of it was not so interesting. And finding the jewels, sometimes the jewels were jewels in performance. Sometimes the jewels were family movies that were uh, embedded in the middle of a demo reel because there was not a blank tape to use so, you know, 
there was Rick Scotty's demo reel, 20 copies of it. So, you know, that went into to shoot the, the birthday, the kid's birthday party. So I looked at 20 versions of that demo reel because in the middle of the demo reel, there would be this jewel. It was that kind of an archaeological dig. And I put together this compilation of what materials that I thought would be very interesting for Julia to screen with Dan. And obviously the one that you're pointing to is the one that was really a real marker. Because what we see on stage is a comedian struggling, working out very personal stuff. And that's what good comedy is. That's what truthful comedy is, is you know coming from a place of that kind of exploration. That moment is the illumination of that struggle. You touched a lot about collaboration and having great people to work with and just bounce ideas off of. Tell me about the process when it comes to screening your rough cuts and how you hone that final project to what we see today. I screened the film for for the wonderful Lewis Erskine, who gave me such beautiful notes, and for the wonderful Sam Pollard, who is, you know, another huge figure in the doc world. These are wonderful mentors to me. Not too many other people. I kept it in a pretty small circle. I think it's dangerous, you know, at least in my process, to hear from too many voices. You know, it's really easy to get in, in early on in a, in a structure of, of a project to hear from too many people. But another person who was really important to me and a film that was kind of a touchstone was Joan Rivers' A Piece of Work. The wonderful director of that film, Penny Falk, who I met through Lewis Erskine. She won an editing award for that film, for Joan Rivers' A Piece of Work. And it was, you know, it was a film that was such an important touchstone because it's a film about a woman of a certain age who's in comedy, who's looking back at her career, who's trying to figure out her relevance, all of that, you know, which really relates very directly to the story that I was beginning to tell. I looked at that film a lot for inspiration. And then I got to meet with Penny. And I just thought she was, you know, just brilliant. And and she loved Julia and loved everything about the subject and actually talked to her about working on my film. It didn't work out for her timing, but um, she continued to be interested in it. And she continued to watch cuts. And she gave me the most important notes, structural note on the next to the last cut that really, you know, turned things around for me in, in terms of the just a very key movement of structure. You know, it wasn't, ex- it wasn't an extensive note, but it was just one of those, you know, structural, brilliant, surgical calls. And I credit her enormously for that. It was just a real, and I thank her every time I talk to her. When was the first time Julia sees it and what's her reaction? Julia saw it with a lot of companions. Her manager was with her and both of her managers, her former manager, Kathy, who's in the film, and her current manager, Tom. And two of my producers were there. We, we screened it in a little screening room at Tisch. She was laughing and crying and very moved. She had just come out of the hospital two weeks before. She's in great health now. Knock, knock, knock. She was ready to shoot a the Showtime special that's running now. And she had this terribly serious call and had to have quadruple bypass surgery. It was a huge thing that uh, was, you know, life-changing and thank God, you know, successful. But she was still kind of, kind of fragile when um, she came to see it. So 
I was a little worried about that. How, you know, at the weight of seeing a film about your life that is, and she had not seen anything over the whole five years. That was the, 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 the extraordinary trust that she, she gave me. She didn't ask to see it. She just said, you know, I'm going to give you everything and I'm going to open my private life to you. And as you see in the film, it's, you know, it's public and private in, in the most intimate way. So I, I was nervous, of course. I wanted to make sure that she was in the home, ready for it emotionally. And she loved it. She was, she was moved by it. And I can't imagine how hard it is to look at a document like that, you know, to trust someone with all of the stuff of your life and then be hands off for that period of time and then to come and see it. I mean, it could have been a nightmare. So I, I just am very, very grateful to her for that trust. She's, you know, she's with me on almost every interview now. She loves talking about the film. She loves being a part of bringing it out to the world. She's having a lot of good experiences from that, which is making me really happy. A lot of good people are understanding who she is, and I think it's helping a lot of people discover her who weren't aware of her. Well, tell me about the movie coming out. What is the life of the film, and especially how is it affected by the pandemic? Well, it was very much affected in terms of the festival journey. We had planned the festival journey to be Julia touring with the film, doing live comedy in the same cities where, where we were screening. And, you know, that was the design. And what a great, you know, evening or several evenings for filmmakers, for filmgoers to be able to, and filmmakers to be able to meet a, a person through this biographical story and then see her perform, you know, in the same time frame. So, that was the joy of what we were going to do. And then, you know, I had my basket of DCPs ready to roll and COVID hit. So we had to go into the virtual space, which a lot of distributors were not happy about, you know, the idea of what that was going to do to, you know, exposing film in that way. So we went through a whole process as many festivals gave us careful geo-blocking. And, you know, there was all of that care in the way of the number of views and, you know, how we were pacing ourselves and all of that. But many, many, many films traveled the circuit in order to build the momentum that you need to launch a film. So the more we were traveling, the more we got accustomed to the whole idea of it. And I think the more the whole industry became more comfortable with it because we had to be. There was no other choice. So here we are now in release and we're you know in a whole different rhythm of finding our audience. Well, where is the film available? I know I can rent it on Amazon Prime. Where else can I see it? Everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, you can go to the website for the film, Julia Scotty Film, and there's a watch button, which shows you all of the places you can go, which is Apple TV and Amazon and iTunes and Voodoo and on and on and on. You know, so there's tons and tons of platforms where it lives. Has the documentary bug bitten you? Are you already planning your next one? I think it has to be a very selective process. I don't think it's going to be, you know... It has to begin with obviously falling in love with someone and with a subject and with a world that has that opportunity to invite you in. I'm working on something else now that came from a play that I wrote that I think wants to be a mini series. So that isn't that is fiction uh, based on a real you know a real character who I knew, but it grew into fiction. So it's it's a mixture now in this current project on my desk that is inspired by but is growing as fiction susan thank you so much for your time this has been fantastic thank you mike this is really a joy and 
I just want to send you know, a final note uh, honoring brilliant Lewis Erskine, who has given so much to me and to so many other filmmakers and to just people in the world. I hope your listeners look him up on IMBD, find his films, and uh, toast him a beautiful, joyful, important, not just editor, but just a shining light all around. And there's a there's a, a talk that he did a few years ago at Sundance about privilege and about opening the doors to the opportunities for people of color in every aspect of leadership in the film industry. And it's a beautiful moving address that he gave that I think resonates so strongly right now. So I honor Lewis Erskine and I send him my love today and, and forever. He's been very important to this project and I owe so much to him. to look at Nothing to see Just glad I'm living And happy to be I got a woman Crazy for me She's funny that way I can't save a dollar Ain't worth a cent She'd never holler She'd live in a tent I got a woman Crazy for me She's funny that way She'd love to work and slave for me Every day She'd be so much better But why should I leave her? Why should I go? She'd be unhappy without me, I know. I got a woman crazy for me. She's funny that way. Once in a while Her only answer Is one little smile I got a woman Crazy for me 
she's funny that 